You are Locked On Women's Basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Megdahl, reminding you you can follow us on Twitter at Locked On WBB. You can go ahead and like us on Facebook, Locked On Women's Basketball. And I would urge you to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice. Review us if you like us. Want to make sure that the word gets out about the great game of women's basketball. And we're here to help you do so. And someone who's been here to help us do so and is growing the game in vast and ever-increasing ways is Coach Karen Aston of University of Texas. Coach, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for the invitation. I hope all is well. I, it, I, and same to you. Um, <clears throat> place I'd love to start with you is just if you could take me through some of your earliest basketball memories, and, and you're a basketball lifer. Uh, how did it begin for you, and where did you first fall in love with the game? Oh, gosh. That's, that's a long way back if you want to know when I first fell in love with the game. That, um, <laughs> that, that probably started with, um, family, you know, just being around my family who was pretty sports oriented. Um, everybody in the house watched sports, so kind of grew up loving it. And I would say my sister played high school basketball, and at that time, there you know really wasn't a lot of opportunity for women after high school. And I just sort of adored watching her play, and I, I would say that's probably where the passion started and then uh, you know I think there's always I think everybody has has a hidden passion somewhere and it just kind of depends on whether someone fuels it or not and I would have to give most of the credit for the fueling to my high school coach Um, Hmm. his name was Tom Webb and he was just really I think ahead of his time and uh, very demanding, but I was one of those kind of kids that you know. The more you gave me, the more I was going to give back, and mm-hmm. so I would I would say he was probably a real really big part of of uh, fueling my passion. Now, is he the one who's talking to you about? Look, you you have a future in this game, whether it's uh, playing collegiately, like you did at Arkansas Little Rock, or uh, as a coach, or is that something you're coming to a little bit later on in terms of that this can be more than just something you love as you're playing it in high school? I think he did fuel uh, the coaching bug a little bit for me because when I was a senior, you know, we we had he coached everybody so he coached seventh grade junior high senior high all of that and and when i was a senior he actually let me coach the seventh grade team which at that time you know it it was he was trying to build something and he did build it really uh uniquely at, at the high school that i went to and i think that probably gave me a little bit of a bug but i have to say that i took that normal route that everybody takes i think in college where they think they're going to do something and you know, then that time comes where you have to sort of decide whether you're going to let go of the sport or not, and that was a process for me. I mean, I originally thought I was going to major in psychology, and, you know, you just go through that time where you're trying to figure out who you want to be and and all of those things, and when I got to the end of the line with it and thought, okay, what do I really want to do with my life, you know, it was hard to think about giving up the game because I love it so much. So once you made that decision, what was your first step, and how did you go from there, from understanding this is 
what you wanted to do to uh, going and, and obviously eventually working for Kim Multi at Baylor? Well, I graduated, um, you know, from college and from Arkansas Little Rock and, you know, still couldn't figure out exactly what path I wanted to take. So I took a little bit of time off and and then, you know, mom tells me it's time to get busy. You know, you're a regular college kid and you just want to breathe for a minute because you've been playing the sport your whole life. And sure. I took a breath for a minute and then I thought, you know, that's long enough. Uh, I need to get to work. And I took a high school job at Valonia High School in Arkansas. And, you know, it was just a huge, at the time, I think a huge break for a young person because most people have to make some sort of sacrifice as far as, going up the ranks even in high school and I was blessed enough to have a connection with that school and I was hired as a head coach and it wasn't the easiest thing in the world but I think in 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 the long run I learned my lessons pretty quickly and got my feet wet and I, I loved it it was a great experience for me I coached at Bologna for six years and then I went to Fort Smith Northside for a year mm-hmm. and then my actual break was not um it was at Baylor, but at the time, I had I had come across a lady named Sanja Hogue, who, if you're a lifetime basketball fan, you know who Sanja is. Sure. And she was in the in business um, in Little Rock, and was speaking at a clinic that I was at an All Star game that I was coaching at. She spoke there during the time I was a high school coach, and I developed a relationship with her, and just kept reaching out, you know, wanting to pick her brain and wanting her to come speak to our kids. Well, she landed the Baylor job when it was time to sort of resurrect Baylor. Um, Sonia took the job, and I called her and said, I'll, you know, I'll come sweep the floors for you if that's what I have to do, and that's about what I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, took the, I took the restricted earnings job at Baylor, which at the time, I guess that's probably what you would call a GA position now. Right. Uh, it was called restricted earnings at the time, and quite honestly... Um, Everything that has happened since then, I owe to Sanja because she, she just took a young buck, so to say, and just said, "Okay, I'll, you know, I'll let you tag along with me." And, you know, I sort of called a couple of those years that I was there, sort of like driving Miss Daisy because I really <laughs> basically did whatever Sanja wanted me to do. And if I drove, I mean, I drove her to a million speaking engagements because, you know, her calling really was to try to resurrect a program and I had nobody better to do it than her and you know she really was responsible for getting Baylor off the ground and obviously Kim has done a terrific job since then but Sanja sort of laid the groundwork yeah you can so see Sanja's work to this day no question about it yeah, yeah yeah I spent two years there and and then I decided you know I want to be a coach and so I went to North Texas as a, that was my first assistance job and mm-hmm. I was there two years and then uh, I guess got the big break in a sense of Jody noticing my work and hired me here at Texas as, a, and as an assistant and I was here eight years and that's, that was the bulk of my assistant coaching career. And, and what's interesting, I, I mean you, you've made that journey twice in essence uh, through North Texas to Texas uh, yeah. but <laughs> you know in, and, and, and via Baylor as well actually so I, I'm curious though when you got that opportunity to coach at Charlotte, what, how difficult it was? Because you made uh, a, you know, a remarkable decision, and you know, one that is perfectly understandable. But 
had to be challenging. Uh, you were building a program at Charlotte and getting better each year and made the decision to return home to Texas to, to be with your mom. How difficult a decision was that and how hard was that for you just at that time? Obviously, personally, it's difficult when your mom is sick, but also as all the time and work you put in and, and you and I both know that your time is not your own when you're an assistant coach and you're building up to this point uh, to make that leap of faith? Well, I think, first of all, it is, you know, some decisions you make, they go on gut feeling, and, uh, you know, some are clearly guided by a higher power. And, I mean, quite honestly, when I left Charlotte, I my mom wasn't sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, I left because I thought that I needed to get back home because I didn't know when the next opportunity would arise. So mm-hmm. leaving Charlotte was by far the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, I had really developed some unique relationships with our administration there. Uh, you know, I absolutely adored my kids. We had really built something really special. And walking in that door and telling those kids after we had had a really special season the year I left and went went to the final four of the WNIT yeah and just had a great team uh really should have been an NCAA team and Mm -hmm. had a great run and um I just adored those kids and adored my administration and it was the hardest thing I had ever done but I honestly just thought okay I'm I'm a long way away from home over 20 hours and I just decided that it was the best opportunity for me to get back home. Mm-hmm. And again, you just I, I say this all the time to our players, windows open and close, and you don't ever know if they'll ever open again. And I say that from a player perspective, when you're playing, you never know when that window of opportunity happens for you to play, and you should take advantage of it when it opens and not think there's going to be another day. And I sort of looked at it as that when I took the North Texas job, not thinking anything other than I had a special place in my heart for North Texas because it was my first job. And it was an opportunity to get a little closer to home. Hindsight, major blessing in a sense that now, you know, four or five years later, my mom does get ill and I'm, closer and able to get home when I need to and all of that but again that was that was not known at the time but uh, a real blessing in disguise but I mean just take me through and obviously North Texas has a special place in your heart but you had accomplished a great deal at this point and one would argue the resume was beyond uh, uh, the head coaching position at North Texas they had just won five games the year before are you having any questions in your mind as you're walking through that door uh, to take over that program? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, the AD there was very committed to helping North Texas get better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's always the case. And I've been very blessed to, as a head coach to work under three unbelievable ADs. And I think any time that you know there's a commitment to the women's game and to women's sports, then you don't question where you are. And and I didn't ever look back on that. I mean, I missed my kids at Charlotte, and I missed the people and and all of those things. But quite honestly, the year that I spent at North Texas was one of the best I have ever had as a coach. Hmm. And 
you know, you don't you look at the wins and the losses and you wouldn't think that, but that bunch ran through a wall for us and I've never had a group of kids that just bought in immediately and just said, Just tell me what to do and I'll do it the best of my abilities and that group did that, and it was one of the most heartwarming and best experiences of my life. I mean, it, it, it's a tribute to who you are as a coach, of course, because you, you, you took over uh, in April. So these weren't your recruited kids. These weren't players you had brought in to adhere to your particular system. So the fact that they went from 5 to 15 wins, I think, speaks volumes about it. I, I'm curious about something you said, though, just tangential to that. You talked about the belief and and uh being invested in the women's game here we are in 2017 how rare do you think that is as of right now and do you have you seen it become significantly less rare during your time coaching uh it's a tough it's that's a tough question because i mean administrations across the country have invested Mm -hmm. money um, facilities, all of those things for equity for women and you know it's hard for me to answer that because I've been at such wonderful places with, with administrators that really care about women and you know Judy was my first experience as a head coach Judy Rose at, at Charlotte and I don't know that there's anybody besides the one that I have now which is Chris Blonsky yeah that is any more invested in women than those two women are. Um, I, I guess as you travel around the country, you, uh, just, you, you go really to opposing arenas. It's really hard to answer arenas. that because yeah. I've been at such blessed places. Do you, do you, so it's hard to know whether there's necessarily an improvement or, or if it's just speaking to your personal experience, in other words? That's exactly right because yeah. I, you know, I have peers that I'm not sure that they're overall blessed with the same opportunity mm-hmm. uh, that I've had. I say this all the time if you're, you know, if you're at the University of Texas, I mean, you don't have an excuse. I mean, you we're afforded all of the things that it that's necessary to be successful and I've just been blessed enough to have those opportunities at all the places that I've been and I know there are places that that's not, maybe not the case, but I would say that across the board my perception is that people are investing in the women's game and mm-hmm. You know, maybe we've gotten a little bit away from the grassroots perspective in the women's game, but you look at the television market and you look at ESPN's commitment to women's basketball, and I I just don't think that we could possibly say that people aren't investing in it. I, I think from my perspective, I just think we need to get a little bit back to the grassroots as far as trying to get fans involved. Mm-hmm. What, what, I think we've gotten a little bit away from that in the women's game because it is a little bit commercialized in a sense. But and we do have we are saturated in the television market, and that's a wonderful thing. But we also need to continue to grow our game with with the young, the young kids, and and grow our game and reaching out to communities and all of that. And I think for a period of time we got away from that, and I do think we realize that and we're getting back to it. Uh, is that things as simple as? You know, uh, school days where there are matinee, weekday games, and kids can come. Is it as important as just coaches having summer camps and things in the community? Or do you think there are things from the sports perspective, from your end of things? Because to my mind, there are a million things media can do. 
from my side of things to improve that type of not just grassroots effort but also uh, knowledge of the game and having the game be an ever-present part of the sports landscape. But what can you guys do? Because quite frankly, running a uh, an elite uh, D1 college program is tough enough by itself without also being responsible for uh, growing the next generation as well. So, so what do you do on your end of things? Oh, it's an it's a ever-going question yeah. right now, and we've been spending a lot of time in the last couple of years at the Final Four brainstorming. I think it's collective. I I think that marketing can do more. I think media can do more. And I think that the women's coaches and the women's sports can do more. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's collective. I don't think you can blame it on one person. I don't think that you know, there's one group of people that can make a change. I, I think that it starts really with us. I think it starts with how we develop young players. I think it starts with still continuing to have our camps and free clinics. And um, it starts with how we reach out. Yeah. I think for a period of time, we got away from little things like having autographs after games and doing free clinics after a game and we got away from that a little bit I think thinking that the game was going to continue the way it was without us continuing what we were doing back in the day when Jody was here and Pat was here and Vivian and and Kay Yao and all those guys I mean it was a community involvement and I think we got away from that a little bit and so I I think it's collective you know I think we can all do a better job not just one group that's really interesting, and, and I think you're you're so right about it. Not only in terms of there's small things like the posters being given away. They end up. I, I have two daughters. They end up in their rooms, and it's a reference point, and uh, makes them want to return and go. You know, go back and see more basketball being played. But even those post game meetings, they they make an impact. So it, it's it's fascinating to see. Uh, but I, I'm struck by something you said. Uh, a little while ago talked about that at Texas there's no excuses and uh, of course you don't need any excuses because you just keep winning and more every year. I'm curious when you take over a team at Texas and uh, you guys had 12 wins your first year but longer term did you see it happening this fast and how did you define in your mind what you wanted to build at Texas? Well, first of all, I, I was. I think there's a couple of things that I was really fortunate to have as I came into the program five years ago. And the first one was just the knowledge of the University of Texas. I, I think I had a, a jump start with that mm-hmm. in the fact that I understood the climate uh, at Texas. And I think the second thing is I had relationships in the state of Texas with high school coaches with club coaches, so I think that those things helped as we, you know, got a hired several people that had Texas ties uh, to the university or the state, and I think all of those things helped sort of lay the groundwork, Um, and then I think I was really fortunate to inherit a freshman class that I'm assuming that Gail recruited to help get Texas to a different level. Uh, they were good kids. They were talented. 
Um, I was fortunate to get Selena Rodrigo from Wake Forest because they had had a coaching change. Mm -hmm. uh, because we didn't have a point guard when I rolled in here. And so that was just a gift from up above because it would have been really challenging. But Selena came in here as a, you know, as a transfer that was automatically eligible. And she, bless her heart, took the wrath of me for a couple of years and, and, um, you know, came, came on top at the end of, uh, end of the day. But I think those things combined helped stabilize things. I mean, it wasn't a fun first year, but I would say that those kids that ended up graduating uh, last year spent four years really buying in. And at times it was really difficult for them because it was rough at first, but mm -hmm. they never wavered from the fact that they wanted to be successful here at Texas and they came here to be successful. And again, I didn't recruit them. And that's always difficult when you don't recruit people, you know, how do they how do they respond to you and there were some times that were really difficult but they never wavered in what they wanted to accomplish here at Texas and I think sometimes that gets lost in the shuffle with coaches getting responsibility and getting credit because players provide their own path mm -hmm. and players decide whether they want to be successful or not by the work that they do and the commitment that they have and you know as we went on into it a few years later, we were, you know, we had some recruiting success, but I think the very beginning of it really starts with those four kids being committed. Yeah, and and w one of those kids that came in who, who graduated last year is, uh, of course, uh, Imani Boyette, who uh, whose personality and game is uh, taking the WNBA by storm. Uh, <laughs> I, in terms in terms of Imani, who um, you know, friend of the show, and uh, I, I'm I'm you know, friend to women's basketball. Uh, across the world now in Israel, what st stands out for you about coaching her? Do you have a particular favorite Imani Boyette story? We don't have enough time for all of my Imani Boyette <laughs> stories. Um, you know, Imani and I had a, a love-hate relationship the whole time she was here, and mm -hmm. I miss her dearly. I mean she would dive if if she heard me say this but i miss her personality as as quirky as it was imani grew up while she was at texas and she matured into a leader um you know her the things that she did on the court i think speak for themselves and i think more than anything i appreciate the fact that she wanted to get something done here and she had her ups and downs but you know, as far as having a favorite story, oh, I, I mean, you know, the, my story is just simply watching her grow up because she was so, you know, I don't want to say broken, but she had things going on with her and she had underneath all of that a lack of confidence. And along the way, Imani really learned how to put in the work. And I think she's learning that even more at the professional level. Yeah. But you know, it was just—it was fun to watch Imani grow up. And, and watching her after the Elite Eight game uh, last year it was notable to me. Uh, when you guys were at the post-game news conference, she talked about the impact you had on her as a person, every bit as much uh, as the impact you had uh, on the court as well. So obviously, that was striking, uh, going in both directions. But in terms of last year, you know, to get to the Elite Eight. 
and to play uh, in retrospect was as tough against UConn as anybody did. Uh, what did you take out of last year's team, and what do you think it meant in, relative to where you want the program to be to get to that Elite Eight and to have the success that you did, 31 wins? Well, first of all, I, I definitely have been coaching long enough to understand that any time you win 30, then you've had a special year. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to discount that. It was a really, really special year, and it, it, was, a, it was fun in so many ways besides the winning. I just really enjoyed the commitment level that that team had. I think that, in retrospect, you, you know, we set a goal when we first got here. Uh, as a team, you know, players, coaches, everybody, to just get Texas back on the national map. And I think that that happened last year in a sense of, I think people knew not only do we have good players coming in, but we were performing at a high level with what we had. And so I think that people are perceiving us a little bit differently now. Are we where we need to be? And, you know, obviously the Final Four is the ultimate goal for us in winning a national championship. But I do think that we've reached a competitive level where we have Texas back on the scene. And so we, we, we definitely think that we've accomplished something. It's just getting to that next step, you know. And I, I hated that for that team that, quite honestly, I thought we were better than being in the in the bracket with Connecticut. Mm -hmm. um, I hated that because I do think that we had potential the way we were playing to be a Final Four team. And I, again, when you've done this as long as you've done it, and in '03 we went to the Final Four, and the following year returned everybody but a couple of players and got beat in the second round. That gave me the perspective right there that you should never assume anything's going to happen. Right. Right. So I, I hated that that was such a special team and, and it just was an unfortunate seed for us. And, you know, it, it it's a lesson learned that, you know, you just enjoy the moment. And the one thing I will say about that team that's been really interesting and it always reminds me, this team this year has been so dramatically different and it just reminded me that every year you start over. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter how good you were the year before, if you take one out and you put one in, or three or four, right. in our case it was four, then you're going to have a completely different dynamic and you can't assume anything. And this year has really taught me that in a sense of don't assume they're going to have the same mindset. Don't assume they're going to have the same personality and all of that. And so this year's been a process of growing again, and it's been, it's been a lot of fun, but it's also been a reminder that it all starts over every year. And and to that end, you you scheduled. I'm, when I look at your non-conference schedule, I get tired just reading it in terms of the <laughs> gauntlet that you've gone through. And to what extent was that decision made with this specifically in mind that the four uh, are leaving and that you're looking to create something different? And then to that end, people. Have always talk about, you know, you play a difficult non-conference schedule, it helps you get better. I know you've specifically talked about getting, it, getting ready for Big 12 play, but in what areas do you think this team has gotten better because of playing all of those elite teams in November, December? I think we've gotten better about 
preparation. And that was what was so difficult is that we had such an immature team and an inexperienced team that when we, you know, loaded the plane to go to Stanford in the first game, we were unprepared. And I I knew that, you know. I mean, you as a coach, you watch your team practice and you know whether they're prepared or not. And that's our job, to get them prepared. And I've, I knew that we weren't ready. So... I knew right then and there that we were going to have to just get through the process of getting better, and some of it was not going to be pretty and not going to be fun, but you also know that you have talent, and you know that you have good kids, and, and you know that at some point that'll turn, and you just don't know when. And I think it was really uh, a testament to our players and, and our leadership sort of moved forward as we went along. And then our assistant coaches, I think, really did a great job throughout this process of getting to where we are right now of just taking each day and trying to get better and taking the players individually under their wing and saying, okay, this is what you need to do. And it's been an ongoing process every single day, and it still is. I mean, we played Oklahoma on Tuesday night, and there were a million teaching lessons for the young players. Mm Mm-hmm because we were in moments that were tough every possession mattered and you know there was poor shot selection and there was you know breakdowns on defense so every time we play there's a teaching moment for this group and we just I think my staff has done an unbelievable job of continuing to teach them and keep them engaged keep their confidence levels high Um, and that's what it's all about it's all about confidence and the fact that we didn't we just kept talking about the future and what this was going to do for us and not getting caught up in you know poor pitiful us we've had a bad schedule and you know we we're not very good right now and all that I mean we just tried not to have that kind of attitude and I felt like when they went home for Christmas and took a deep breath and thought okay we got through it and we didn't you know it wasn't a disaster and we're okay and Let's get back and go to work. I thought they came back from Christmas holidays with a different mindset. And and to take command in the fourth quarter the way you did in that Oklahoma game, I thought was notable and quite frankly reminiscent of the more experienced team you had and what they did uh, against UCLA in the Sweet 16 for the tournament last year uh, with a different group of people here. But even more than that group as a whole, to, to see someone, uh, a young player like Joyner Holmes, come through and the extent to which you were leaning on her offensively in the fourth quarter, what as a coach allows you, you know, with Joyner specifically, but also in general, to make that decision, okay, this freshman is ready to grab onto more of the load in a key game against a ranked opponent? I think everything happens in practice. I'm I'm a huge believer that what they look like in practice is probably what they're going to look like in a game. And for so long, Joyner was overwhelmed, and any freshman is. I mean, a freshman is overwhelmed with being a freshman and the environment that they're in and the change of environment. And, and for her, the schedule – and I would say this about all of our newcomers, the schedule was a bit overwhelming, and they didn't probably ever feel like they could catch their breath. And Mm -hmm. Joyner looks different in practice, and so the trust is is built in practice. And when I see her 
working extra and doing the things that she needs to do with, with Tina and really trying to correct some things that maybe she wasn't able to correct in the midst of, of the non-conference schedule, then that puts a little more trust, not only with me, but with her teammates. I mean, they trust her now that she's, I mean, she's obviously going to make mistakes, but the thing that's so, I think, encouraging about Joyner is that she's trying to correct her mistakes. She doesn't just continue to make the same ones over and over and over, and I think that is a sign that she's growing and a sign that she's maturing a little bit and it transfers over into the games just because I think she's taking our preparation every day more seriously and understanding it better. Do you view it as necessary to groom her or even groom someone in particular as a go-to scorer down the stretch in a key game? And You know, coaches have a lot of different uh, philosophies about this, but uh, notable to me, and, and this is very typical of, of one of your teams, is you have had six different high scorers already in various games, and you've had seven different players with an assist percentage uh, in double figures, at least 10%. Nobody at 20. You know, Brooke McCarty making the offense go in a lot of ways, but she is part of this larger team in terms of passing, in terms of scoring, in terms of distribution. I, is that your ideal or in your mind do you think you need to have someone who is going to be the one you need to take the big shots come March and hopefully April? Well, I I think that we do know there are two or three players on our team and that can hit big shots. I mean, Oklahoma game was a perfect example. Joyner made some plays, but Kelsey Lang hit some huge shots. No question. And Ariel Atkins was a star and, and everywhere yes I mean, first of all I recruited Ariel and Brooke for that reason I thought they were big shot players mm -hmm. and as we've gone along and uh, just to rewind a minute about your question I am the kind of coach that believes in sharing the ball and I don't prefer for everybody to watch one player shoot 30 times so it's sort of my style, and I don't know that we'll ever get away from that, um, but you definitely have to have players that are willing and able to take shots at the end of games. And, I, you know, I think at this point right now, Ariel and Brooke are the two that most people would think would hit the big shots. But, again, Kelsey Lang hit some huge ones the other night, and, and uh, just sharing the ball and, and people not necessarily knowing who's going to take the big one, I think is a, is a plus also to be able to have more than one or two players that can do that. In terms of Brooks' development as an offensive player, it, it, to me it's something that's notable is that she leads your team in true shooting percentage, and she's doing that from that lead guard position. What do you think is the next development for Brooke? between now and uh, and the end of the year? What are you looking for her to add next? I think it's actually happening. Uh, the, the next development for Brooke was to think the game for everybody else. Hmm. Um, she's always been a scorer, and she ha has the ability absolutely to make the right pass at the right time, but the next level for her is to really think for everybody, think as a coach. And she's growing into that, and I mean just the progress that she's made from 
November to mid-January right now is amazing because she was a little overwhelmed with, with all of it when we started just because her first two years, I think she spent, you know, being able to roll up there every now and then is a little bit different than this is your team. Right. And you run the show and you help everybody get organized and you make sure everybody's on the same page. It's a whole different dynamic. And Selena Rodrigo did that for two years with Brooke. And that was a huge transition for her, not from a talent standpoint, but just mentally. Mentally and physically, just, it's my team, you know, as far as being the point guard. And, and it, it's a different dynamic, and it has taken her some time. But I, I'm very pleased and, and impressed with how far she's come in such a short period of time. And the results are on the court, because notably, despite the fact that, you, you know, you lose... Uh, someone like Selena, you lose someone like Imani Boyette, who just from a uh, perspective of efficiency was so enormously helpful, not only in terms of her shooting, but because she's ending so many defensive possessions by grabbing defensive rebounds. She's getting you more possessions on the offensive rebounding side of things. But when you look at your overall points per possession, offense and defense, you are almost identical to where you were last year with a younger team too does it strike you that this team has a higher ceiling which i know is a hard thing to to speculate about but then your team that went out there and you win 30 games and you make it to the elite eight well i say this almost every day when we when we're in our staff meetings the development of our young players is so critical, which is why I go back to this, the time that my staff is spending with these individuals because we have talented players. So the ceiling is a little bit higher because I think the talent level across the board is a little higher. And now it becomes what happens when Suge Sutton comes in the game? What happens when Jada Underwood comes in the game? What happens when the Karan Goodrow comes in? Hosey, LaShawn Higgs uh, is so important to our team. So all of the players, you know, Tasia Foman, we have, I mean, across the board, we have players that are capable of giving us something different and more. And, and I think that the ceiling is only as high as we, as, as those players develop. Mm-hmm. And, I'm seeing our team play better right now in a lot of scenarios because we're getting more from our bench. We're getting lifted. Um, And there was a period of time early in the year because of lack of experience and development, there was a period of time in the non-conference season where if we subbed out our older players, there was a a major drop-off. And it was just lack of experience. Um, And I think that we're starting to develop into a deeper team and as you know as long as everybody stays in the same frame of mind i I definitely think the ceiling is higher it it certainly looks that way and especially to be seeing it happening this early is is a welcome sign but no surprise with the teams that you've been building year after year just for you personally and in terms of the the opportunity you've had to be spending more time with your mom what has this year been like how is she and and how are you uh, as you navigate you know each each of these things being challenging in and of themselves well 
well, I'm terrific because I'm I'm at the greatest place in the world and and coaching a sport that I love and have a great team that I love working with every day. Yeah. So it, it's you know it's a great time to be at Texas and and I'm enjoying every moment. And I would say the same thing with my mom. I mean, you know, she was diagnosed in March with pancreatic cancer, and they they told me uh, the day that she got operated on that it would be about three months. So we're we're going on a lot longer than that, and she's getting great reports, and it's just an amazing thing. And so every moment, you know, is just precious, and it's fun, and just to be able to see her. I mean, I you know I, I think she gets a good report today, and I'm going to fly her and and my my stepdad up to Dallas and Fort Worth on Tuesday, and she's going to come back with me and spend a week here, and just to be able you know for her to be able to do that and 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 spend some time is is a terrific thing and a blessed thing, and I couldn't ask for a better scenario because again you know when you're looking at the grim reality of what someone's telling you when it's three months then you just cherish every moment from that point do you ever think about you talk giving me a different perspective too you know it yeah of course I, I have a little bit of a different perspective on everything I mean I you know and I think everybody does that deals with cancer mm-hmm. and deals with any kind of um, situation with their parent or a spouse or anything like that I, I think that you just learn to enjoy moments a little bit better and do you, do you ever think about it in terms of that decision you made that that gut call that allowed you to have this extra time and and the way in which that fit into the larger plan of your life I do I think about that a lot I, you know I, I think timing is everything and you know it, it was again it was a gut feeling and you look back on that, and again, you know, you, you just realize that everything happens for a reason, and sometimes that reason isn't what you want it to be, and sometimes it, it works out to be something really good, and, uh, you know, I, that's an old saying that I really do believe is true. I really do believe everything happens for a reason. Yeah, well, Coach Karen Aston, so much has happened for a reason, and you have been that reason time and time again, so uh, congratulations on uh, an epic career and uh, very excited for uh, what's to come uh, in the days, months, and years ahead. Well, thank you so much for having me on, and uh, I just can't thank you enough um, just for your your gifts back to our game and the fact that you're putting women's basketball on the platform and um, I think it's terrific and I wish there were more like you and just know how much we appreciate you. I I appreciate that but I can assure you the pleasure is all mine and so to our listeners I want to thank you for listening today. Reminder you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB. You can like us on Facebook, LockedOnWomen'sBasketball or go ahead and subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice. I'm Howard Megdahl wishing you a wonderful day.